Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 12th, 2022. There's an old joke. It's not very funny on the internet, which suggests that you can only go a certain amount of time without talking about Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And uh, Keenon is uh, conforming to that. We've done a number of stories on the Nazi period. We did one with the uh, American writer uh, Helen Munson on Hitler's boy soldiers. Um, those boy soldiers, part of her father's generation, she found her father's diary, who were pulled out of schools and generally forced to fight uh, on the Eastern Front. We, of course, have done lots of shows about the legacy of Nazism. We did one with the Dutch author David de Jong a couple of months ago about the evil legacy of Nazi billionaires. Uh, they're bringing together two of the worst uh the worst, uh, the worst examples of humanity, I guess, uh, the, the Nazis and billionaires. So uh, any book on Nazi billionaires is certainly going to sell. We've also done books on resistance to the Nazis. We did a wonderful conversation with Judy Battalion on um, the resistance of Jewish women to uh, the Nazis. She has a really important new book out, The Light of days and we're continuing in that theme today so much with violent resistance but pedagogical resistance a fascinating new book is out just now by uh, the british author deborah cadbury the school that escaped the nazis the true story of the school teacher who defied hitler deborah is joining us from a sweltering chiswick in west london deborah why is there this ongoing fascination with resistance against the Nazis, people who escaped one way or the other, whether it's the school children and schools in your narrative or, 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 or the other many, many books about resisting Nazism? I suppose, I mean, especially when you look at all the archives as I did and followed Anna Essinger's story, um, you know, trying to understand exactly what it felt like to live through the collapse of democracy and what it felt like to live through that era, you really see humanity getting drawn into ever-escalating evil. And it's such a horror story, uh, what happened in this particular case. But I've almost got two competing narratives because I've got the one narrative which is showing us how you get drawn into evil and the other narrative which is the narrative of the teacher who is which is very inspiring which is really telling us actually andrew can i stop for a second i'm terribly sorry can i stop for a second for some reason i'm seeing a picture of me and it's very distracting uh no you're you're fine uh, deborah continue okay um i can't see you <laughs> um okay so um you've got what really drew me to this was two competing narratives, because on the one hand, you've got a descent into evil um, and really through the through the records, you see what it was like from Anna Essinger's point of view to be 
completely to see the collapse of democracy all around her, to see what it, to have her pupils asking her questions about what to make of Hitler and who was this man that suddenly the whole country had got behind. And and you really, you know, you were put there in this maelstrom as Germany's fledgling democracy collapses. And that seemed a pivotal turning point. And from there, you know, this descent into evil, you just it's fascinating to explore as a writer to understand what humanity is capable of. We always put ourselves, Deborah, um, I think, whether we do it consciously or not, we always imagine how we would behave in that situation. We always hope, of course, that we would be defiant, like the hero of your story or the heroine of your story, Anna yeah. Essinger, the school teacher who, took her, who quite literally picked up her school and took it to the UK. Uh, from Germany. How, how do you think you would have behaved? I would love to think that I would have behaved like Anna Essinger, but it's it's hard to tell, isn't it? Because, you know, she could have so easily just saved herself. And I think what drew me to this story was the fact that she chose to do something very different to that. She was really, um, you know, as soon as she was told she had to fly a swastika above her school, a principle, a line had been crossed, and for her, she just had to um, uh, make a stand and started on these arrangements, which I had, I, you know, I've written a great deal about this period, but I had never heard of a school that smuggled itself out of Nazi Germany. So, of course, you're immediately intrigued with how did she do it, um, you know, what it took to actually smuggle a story out, uh, to smuggle a school, an entire school out of Nazi Germany in 19... Tell me about this woman, Anna Essinger. Uh, she lived between 1879 and 1960, a long life, a, a German Jewish educator and a long tradition. What's so remarkable about this woman in your view? In, in addition to the fact, we'll, we'll get to the story of smuggling the school from Nazi Germany to southern England. What is it about this woman that made her such a defiant figure? Um, I think what caught my eye was, well, firstly, she had studied in America. I suppose we, we first of all have to talk about that because she understood what it was like to live in a democracy. And while she, and of course, it's remarkable in its own right at that time that a woman would be funding herself through further education. And she not only... Um, you know, studied for a degree, she got postgraduate, uh, an MA in education. And she really believed that um, through education, humanity could progress. Through education, each generation would be able to improve on what had gone before. So for her, the school wasn't just a school, it was a way of improving the lot of humanity. And remember this, uh, you know, this was all happening at the time of the First World War, but she was getting her education and everyone came through the First World War, you know, never again. Um, so she put everything into creating her school in Southern Germany, her progressive- Yeah, let's go back to the US. Um, she was born into uh, a family in Ulm, um, non-observant Jewish, uh, family. Uh, her father fought in the war, sent her to, uh, in 1899, um, they went to Tennessee. She became acquainted with the Quakers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And she got an M.A. in education at the University of Wisconsin, where she was also associated with 
the educational philosophy of Montessori and perhaps even Rudolf Steiner of the Waldorf tradition. Um, how important do you think the American period was in Essinger's life in terms of learning and developing theories of education and the formation of the self? I'm sure it was very key for her. Um, you know, back in Germany, education was very anchored in the almost militaristic disciplines of the 19th century, you know, the rod of iron, the memorizing facts, learning by rote, harsh punishments for failure. And when she comes back from um, America in the 1920s, she's completely fired up with a different way of doing things, turning her back on the German education. So certainly the influences on her while she was studying in Wisconsin and while she was in America, and that is, as you say, totally drawing together Quaker influences, the influences of her education, um, and all these other threads that were developing, she started to see that there would be a different way of educating children that much more closely put the child at the center of their education. Have you done entire justice, Deborah, to the German education system after all? Rudolf Steiner, perhaps the most influential early 20th century educator, he was in Vienna. I mean, there were the, the, these ideas of a, a more liberal, yes. a more... Uh, a more ambitious education were uh, formed in Germany, and that's where Waldorf yes. education. So presumably there were seeds of um, non-conformist right. thinking about education in Germany in the 1920s. Yes, there was a progressive movement, and she joined it in the 20s, and where all these ideas were swirling about, and then she decided to put it, put her ideas, you know, test out her ideas. Um, in her school at Landschulheim Hurlingham in southern Germany. Um, but yes, you know, everyone was beginning to challenge the status quo because, you know, Europe had been through such a maelstrom. It was like, how can we do things better? How can we never again have this happen? What can humanity do differently? Um, this this was really important to, the, well, the entire movement. Um, and there were lots of, you know, I mean, even the ideas of Freud uh, were beginning to put a totally different perspective on, on child development, the ego, how all of these things work. So there's a lot of questioning. Um, it must have been a very interesting time to be in education. How much familiarity did Essinger have with the work, not just of um, Waldorf, uh, Rudolf Steiner, but also of Maria Montessori, for example? Was she familiar with their books, with their principles? I think she would have been familiar with their principles, and indeed, one of her one of her first teachers for her junior school was a Montessori teacher. So, um, I think she would have been looking at all these things with great fascination and trying to work out her own methods. Deborah, you're from a very distinguished English family, the Cadbury family. You wrote a book about it, the Chocolate Wars. Were there similar reformist education movements within the UK, perhaps? associated with some of the, the leading families in the country like yours? Um, I think so. I mean, certainly the, the Quakers had established their own almost separate system of education. There were a whole series of Quaker boarding schools which were developed in the 19th and 20th century, um, uh, largely as a result of the exclusion of, of non-conformists from certain aspects of higher education. Um, so there was an entirely 
different system of education if you go back to the 19th century for Quakers compared to non-Quakers. So, I mean, there have always been outside the mainstream other ways of doing things that Anna could look at. And she was very interested in Quaker ideas. Um, we know from her pupils that I was able to trace and I was surprised how many pupils I was able to reach still, still living with wonderful stories about this school. Um, and uh, one of the things she would she would say to them was, you know, children, you must love each other. And if that isn't possible, respect each other. It was really trying to bring out a more compassionate, um, non-competitive way of um, helping children, bring out the best in children. Um, I think she really did want to help these children um, understand the very best of humanity. And for me, that was the reason for writing the book, because it's like you've got these two narratives and going in different directions. You've got a descent into evil, and then you've got the storyline of the teachers, which is really trying to show the children a different path. And I found that quite inspiring. And I also found, to come back to your first question, that it was different um, to the kind of, um, uh, you know, this isn't an ordinary escape story. This is trying to do so much more. Okay, so this woman comes back from the United States, having certainly been associated, acquainted with radical ideas of education from the Quakers, perhaps from Montessori, even from Rudolf Steiner. She sets up a school or she becomes involved in a school in a small town in Germany called Blaustein uh, to the south uh, southwest of, of Germany. Uh, the school, of course, through the, the late 20s is okay. And then the 30s happen. What happens? Why, um, why does she unusually, I think, recognize in 1933 that the game is up, that she, uh, not only does she need to leave Germany, but her school needs to leave too. That's the really fascinating question, because certainly in 1933, even though, you know, within weeks of Hitler coming to power, concentration camps are being set up. We can see democracy collapsing. We can see the judicial system collapsing. Um, within months, you know, you get the sense of freedom of press has gone. I mean, in Ulm, when I looked at the Ulm papers, Ulm being her nearest town, you know, there was an occasion when Hitler comes to visit and um, the Ulm papers are just falling over themselves to present Hitler as this godlike figure. And it's quite creepy looking at it, you know, with the benefit of everything we know now about what was about to happen. So the signs were all around and and yet so many people were saying this will all blow over, you know, people won't stand for it. Hitler, you know, he'll blow himself out. Um, you know, people simply won't put up with these atrocities or with these brown shirts. And um, well, the, the story in the archives goes that the critical moment for her was the day she was told she had to fly a swastika over her school. Um, and the idea, the very idea of flying the despised symbol of fascism above her school um, was so repulsive to her that she um, immediately organized a camping trip for all her pupils and only when the school was completely empty did she fly the flag. Now, uh, um, did you, what were her, 
I mean, obviously, she's an anti-Nazi. That goes without saying. Yes. But yes. what were her politics? Was she associated, for example, with socialist movement, with Zionism, with communism? Or, 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 or was she more interested in education as opposed to politics? Did they not mix in her mind? Um, I don't think in exactly the same way that she was, you know, her school was non-denominational. Um, I don't think that she was attached to one particular viewpoint or another. I think she was instinctively a humanitarian, if that makes sense, instinctively compassionate, kind, wanting to bring out the best in people, all these traditional values, wanting to teach tolerance, compassion, um, uh, you know, she was Christian without adhering to the philosophy, as it were. Um, so a kind of a, a, a Quaker pacifism. She wouldn't have been, for example, particularly inspired by a, a political firebrand like Rosa Luxemburg. I doubt it. I mean, in fact, her brothers, um, two of them did uh, sign up to fight in the First World War. Um, they were rejected because of the family uh, or the entire family seemed to have had desperately bad eyesight um, and uh, they were immediately put in the medical corps but she lost one brother but I, I, I suspect they would have the family as a whole would have skewed pacifist would have skewed left and would have skewed you know let's consider yeah, no, my, my question was about somebody like Rosa Luxemburg a revolutionary socialist a Jewish yes. feminist yes, revolutionary think... socialist certainly and yeah. uh, Ersinger had some of those, if, if you would call them qualities, but uh, her focus was on education. Okay, so in 1933, the school in Blaustein um, is forced to fly the Nazi flag, and 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 and, and the heroine of your book, uh, Anna Essinger, makes a remarkable decision. What does she do? Um, it, 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 again, when things happen, they always seem inevitable, Deborah, but. It, it was a, a remarkable decision and an ambitious, brave decision. How, how did she make the decision to literally uproot the school and take it to England? Um, I wish I could give you, you know, I wish there were records that would tell me the actual moment, the decisive thing. We know it was very early on because by late spring, um, you know, by the time they are burning books and organizing boycotts outside Jewish shops, she's already, um, you know, in Sweden, in Switzerland, looking for a new location for her school and getting a pretty frosty reception because it's amazing how abroad nobody really properly understood the problems that were being faced, the, the, the maelstrom that German society had become, you know, it, the reply she was getting was, you know, look, Hitler's working an economic miracle. What are you fussing about? Um, so, you know, and that was even the response when she went to Britain initially, because she, she, you know, after a while she did stop looking at continental Europe and went to Britain to, to see if she would have, you know, better luck. What was her pitch? Was it an educational pitch? Was it a pitch about Jewish children? Was it a pitch about education? We don't know. We don't know. But the fact that she was appealing in Quaker and Jewish circles, and that's where she got her most favorable reception. Remember, both the, the, the Quaker community and the Jewish community in um, London had 
immediately, as soon as Hitler came to power, set up um, emergency committees, emergency funds to help the Jewish community in Germany. And there were very strong ones between the um, uh, Quaker community in London and the Quaker community in Berlin, uh, with a lot of British Quakers working it. So there was they, they were informed. And as soon as she seems to have found herself in this circle, what I find equally incredible, apart from her remarkable decision, because she's a woman from a modest background, is that quite soon she seems to be consorting with some pretty eminent people. You know, she's got around her, she gets around her quite quickly, a school council that includes, you know, a former home secretary, a former foreign secretary, lady this and sir that. Um, you know, she quite quickly... She must have had quite a bit of charm as well. How good was her English? I guess having lived in America, her English must have been fluent. She had lived in America. And I, I also wonder whether this helped her with this critical decision, because she truly understood from the inside out what it was like to live in a democracy and have freedom and have freedom of thought. And as soon as that line is crossed, where you see that freedom of thought could be taken from you, that for her is the, the decisive moment. She doesn't need to wait to see who's going to be imprisoned in concentration camps. You know, there's the prospect that freedom of thought could be taken away and that's enough. And I, I'm pretty certain, you know, of all the things that we've talked about, like the swastika and the, the way Hitler came to power and the brown shirts on the streets, the thuggery and the violence and the everything in Mein Kampf that had been said about Jews being subhuman, you know, all of this put together and, and people were sort of saying, it's not going to happen, you know, don't worry. Um, but all of this put together was enough for her. And she realized that when she got to London, there were people thinking in the same way um, who were able to help her. And I think that she must have had, well, she was obviously inspirational. She was obviously persuasive. She was a very good organizer. Um, you know, She's not your typical Hollywood heroine by any man. Who's going to play her in the movie? <laughs> you know, I mean, she doesn't. I, she, she, she's a, she's a woman of amazing qualities, and and you know, I think we should write about women like her more because so often, you know, biographies are written about famous men, men who got wonderful power, when men who are, you know, who we all know about. Um, Here's a well, woman. These kind of biographies, I mean, Judy Battalion's book on yeah, no, 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 okay. uh, women who defied uh, defied uh, Hitler, fought Hitler, is, is also remarkable. So let's just pick the story up again. So she quite what literally I meant was, to answer that point. From, uh, from Blaustein in southern southwest Germany and yeah. relocates it to southeast England. It's quite an achievement, Deborah, isn't it? It's a hell of an achievement when you think that, A, she was denounced, and she was denounced quite rapidly, and it's clear that she was denounced by a husband of one of the staff. Um, so, you know, even within that tight-knit circle within her school, uh, there were people who were joining the Nazi party, and somehow they had to smuggle the school out, which involved telling the teachers, telling the parents. Um, the children had to know enough to know how to behave um, you know, as as the smuggling operation went ahead. Um, and the organisational feat was really incredible and took six months. Um, everything came to a head on the 5th of October, 1933. Uh, and what I find incredible, actually, another little detail, was the way Hitler 
had actually come to Ulm for military maneuvers nearby, just literally in the days beforehand, as the teachers were planning their, you know, their final stages of the smuggling operation. And it would have taken just one, you know, all the senior top Nazi top brass were there in Ulm. You could hear the sounds of the, you know, the Nazi song being sung and the great throng in, in Ulm Minster Square. Um, and, uh, you know, there are these teachers planning this thing yeah. that they know is forbidden and that would get them into concentration camps. So there were some amazing moments, actually, just in the smuggling. And, and even more chillingly, the, the school was occupied by the Nazis after they left. And uh, Rommel, the one of uh, the Nazi leading generals, was forced to commit suicide in I think in the building where uh, the school had existed. He left from one of the one of the main buildings, but of course that all happens much later in the war. Right. So so let's um, get back. So, so the school is uh, sorry. Uh, the school is relocated to yeah. and, and becomes known as the Bunce Court School in the village of Otterden in Kent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just lovely because, you know, there are records of the teachers and the children at this point. And, you know, they it wasn't the White Cliffs of Dover. It was the three red buses waiting on the quayside um, with Tantana, who'd gone ahead with, with an advance party to prepare the school. And the Quakers had rented this, what looks like a very grand manor house. It was nowhere near as grand as what you've just shown. It was very run down then. But, you know, it's clear from the whoops and screams of delight, as one of the teachers put it, you know, the children felt safe. This was like a school palace in the middle of the Garden of um, England in Kent. Um, and here they could finally set up this school that they thought was going to be, you know, done in this very special way, trying to communicate the very best of hum human achievements. And, you know, suddenly then you realize that this is just the beginning of the story they've got the school out but a catastrophe is unfolding on the continent and little by little um uh, tante anna as she was known by her pupils aunt anna um is drawn into this ever escalating catastrophe because of course as the jews are being persecuted and, and we have the persecution years before the war as these persecutions get ever more grotesque parents can't pay for their children parents can't get their you know, parents can't get out of the country um you know there's all sorts of traumas going on as we build up to the nuremberg laws um uh the anschluss munich um kristallnacht uh kinder transport there's a succession so how, give me some numbers deborah how many kids went to the school how many quote-unquote and, you know, I'm always careful with this sort of thing. I mean, how many kids, particularly Jewish kids, did uh, Anna Eschinger actually save from the Nazis? Um, well, we know that nine over 900 went through both schools, and I can't tell you how those figures divide up. So I would say several hundred ended up being um, rescued by her and educated and effectively given... Because, of course, over the course of the story, the children are orphaned, um, the, the vast majority of them, um, in circumstances that are incredibly heartbreaking, As you, because you, you don't know straight away, it's as you piece it together. And the teachers were getting certain bits, you know, nobody fully understood about how the policy towards Jews had shifted. 
um, you know, it took a little while before that was properly grasped during the war years. And was it mostly, I mean, did she bring her teachers with her or was it mostly her and English teachers? No, no, no. She smuggled out the teachers too. <laughs> no, she came, well, the first party was um, uh, quite a substantial number of teachers, about 10 teachers and 70 pupils. Um, and uh, I think the maximum number they had in the school at any one time was just before and during the, you know, in the in the immediate build up to the war where they reached 150 children. So, um, you know, it's still a small school, but they are saving the children. And was it was Bunce Court run on more radical educational principles for economic or philosophical reasons? than the German school, or, or, or was it in many ways simply a mirror in pedagogical principles and organization as the German school? Well, that's a very interesting point, because um, certainly it was part of her educational belief that practical skills should have just as much emphasis as academic prowess. And when she was in Hurlingham, there was a lot of emphasis on practical skills. But when they got to Bunce Court, and essentially, as more and more Jewish people having their businesses taken from them or they're, they're, you know, not able to practice as a GP or whatever it was, you know, the funds dry up completely and they are reliant on whatever she can raise as she goes around lecturing because she was determined that no child was going to go back to Germany if they didn't want to. Um, and uh, so they've got no money. Uh, so they've got no domestic, so they decided to have no domestic staff a lot of the teachers are effectively working just for board and lodging um, because they were refugees too, of course, and they understand whether, you know, a great many of them were refugees. She did actually have a 50-50 relationship between, um, you know, it had to be 50% British teachers and 50% uh, foreign teachers, but it, there's a strong refugee component to the staff. Um, anyway, the fascinating thing is that the school put a very strong emphasis on practical activities. It became essential to keep the school running. And the amazing thing is the effect this had on, on the children's education because, you know, soon there were more animals than children as they kept a flock of chickens and they kept a herd of pigs and they were growing their own vegetables and the school became self-sufficient. And it is amazing when I talk to the children, um, children who had been very stressed, uh, who had suffered extraordinary things just how much this actually helped them because they were all doing it together. It immediately gave them a sense of um, belonging. This is their community, they're part of it, they're doing something. The kids are all doing it together, um, you know, telling stories and joking and laughing and singing as they do it. And it, it becomes more of a home school because everyone's mucking in. And it's amazing how many of the former pupils said to me that they just don't understand why more schools aren't run on this basis because you know, it didn't in any way seem to compromise the academic results. She, she got an astonishing academic results, given that they were all, you know, doing exams in English. It wasn't their native tongue. Um, and as time goes on, she's getting Czechoslovakian children and Austrian children and Polish children. And they're all learning English and sitting English exams. Um, so I think, you know, Bunce Court definitely changed compared to the plans for the original school. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And, and that, as you suggest, is perhaps, I mean, the drama of escaping the Nazis obviously captures the headlines, but that's probably the most remarkable aspect of it is the educational principles of this new school. It clearly 
maintained uh, the allegiance of, of the people of, of its alumni. Here we have an image of uh, uh, a, a, two, a 2018 um, Reunion. Uh, anniversary of people who went to, to Bunce Court. Uh, and the, the list of notable alumni is remarkable. It who is. in particular struck you in terms of your research and conversations? Um, well, the reason, yeah, the reason why I heard about the story was because of Leslie Brend, and he was part of a team that won a Nobel Prize for immunology. He was working under Peter Medewa in 1960. Um, now, of course, the school actually had no, they couldn't afford science laboratories. The science teaching, he said, was very inadequate. But it was amazing talking to him how little things like the beekeeping with 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 um it's actually a little retired english teacher with a limp who was keeping the bees and he somehow took leslie under his wing and totally interested him in natural history and similar you know there were so many things that somehow awakened the children's interest genuinely not just sort of swatting for exams the way children do today um leslie was the one that made, encouraged me to write the book and it was clear when I first met him, and he was talking in such emotion, it clearly meant such a lot to him that Anna Essinger, what she did should somehow be recognized that it was something out of the ordinary, um, that it counted for something, that her story to save the school stood for something much larger and something that matters and something that means a lot for humanity. And there was something about the way Leslie was trying to inspire me to write this story that made me feel, yes, I must investigate further. But yes, he is one of those who um, went on to have a very distinguished career in spite of the fact that, you know, he had to leave school at 16 because very few of them could go on to do the equivalent of A-levels today, the, the highest school certificate as it was then. He went into the British Army as so many of them did they were involved in the liberation of Germany. Um, you know, that's a story in itself. These Jewish pupils now in the British army going into Germany and seeing their country just ruined and flattened. There were such evocative descriptions. And also, of course, the anger as to how so many people they spoke to now said that they had never supported Hitler. You know, he had never been their choice. Um, and yet, you know, somehow he had ended up in in power for so long and supported for so long. Um, but we haven't talked about the survivors because in a way, their story... Briefly, uh, briefly, Deborah, let's talk about the survivors. Well, I was surprised to find that there were three memoirs written by pupils who had actually survived the war in occupied um, Nazi territory. And the three I'll talk about are um, Sam Oliner, Sidney Finkel, and Anna Rose. Each one, they give between them, they give a totally vivid picture of what happened in Poland in the Second World War and how it effectively became one vast prison for Jews. And they each survived in totally different ways because Sam survived by hiding in plain sight, posing as a pole, in daily risk of exposure as a Jew and being shot. I mean. The jeopardy to his story is quite horrific. Sydney was in the concentration camp system and Anna was in hiding, having, they all escaped the ghetto and the liquidation of the ghetto, uh, their respective ghettos. And all of them described themselves as 
well, sort of just totally destroyed as people by what they'd gone through. Sam described himself as, as a savage, as little better than an animal by the time he arrives at Bunce Court. And you realize the incredible trauma these children have been through, just what it has done to a child who perhaps is, well, Anna was, I think, only four or five when the war started, Sydney was seven. They barely had time to understand what being human was all about when the bestiality of the Nazi world descends on them. And, um, you know, this is what the teachers take on. And they all said Bunce Court was the start of their journey of healing. It was, it was, it was the way they began to understand how they could create a life for themselves beyond everything that had been destroyed. And it clearly meant a lot to them. To which put is it mildly, um, it's a wonderful yeah. story, Deborah. Congratulations on the school that, that escaped the Nazis. The true, and it is a true story, of the school teacher who defied Hitler. Um, in 2022, is there one particular takeaway from the book? I mean, I want everyone to read it. It's an important story, and we can't always read everything in the context from the perspective of 2022. But in our own age, is there something in particular you think is remains relevant? Is it her bravery, Anna Essinger's bravery, her education principles, her defiance, her obstinacy? It's all of that. For me, it's that freedom of thought really matters and it's worth fighting for. You have to fight for it. When you look at what's going on in Putin's Russia today, the way everything that the, well, so much of what the Nazis did uh, to children, the way the entire curriculum was subverted to Nazi ideology, the same in Russia. You know, children's storybooks are explaining how Ukrainians are no longer the pupil's friend. Uh, the, the Russian boy is no longer friends with the Ukrainian boy. You know, it's heartbreaking to see this propaganda um, repeated all over again. So it's, you know, a warning from history. Humanity has to learn. We can't repeat the mistakes of the past. And I hope that her story inspires people to think about why democracy matters, why truthfulness matters, why freedom of thought matters. Heartbreaking. I agree, Deborah. And your book, uh, your new book, The School That Escaped the Nazis, The True Story of the School Teacher Who Defied Hitler is heartwarming. Again, congratulations on the book. What, what else are you reading these days, Deborah, to warm your heart in chilling times? <laughs> I have re-picked up Any Human Heart, William Boyd. I've revisited that after many Ah, months. William was on the show a couple of months ago. Delightful chap. Oh, I absolutely enchanted uh, reading this again because I've written so many books on 20th century history now, and it must have been a while since I read it, and I'm just delighted, entranced by the way he weaves in so many events in 20th century history into the life of his character and the way he makes the ordinary stand out with just, um, you know, these such clever insights. So I'm finding that light relief after my, after my recent, um, you know, exploration of the Nazi world. <laughs> 